we, we talk about leadership and leaders, leaders who take responsibility. And then when you get to this particular point that it is so public in the national level, are you really going to be true to your beliefs or are you going to find a way to marginalize what, what actually took place? So, you know, it's important that you, when you wake up in the morning, you look yourself in the mirror and uh, so that your conscience is clean, that you, yeah, you, you made the mistake, you, you owned up to it, you took responsibility for it, and you took responsibility for the consequences, whatever they are, and it is what it is. Now it's time to rebuild and to uh, go forward and to continue to go forward. Hey, this is Cal Walters with the Intentional Leader Podcast. I first want to thank you for joining us here today. Our mission is to help you intentionally lead yourself, inspire others, and make the world a better place. I hope you enjoy this message. Let's go make it count. Hey everyone, I'm Cal and welcome to episode 68 of the Intentional Leader Podcast. Our goal is to help you become the type of leader that inspires others to be their best. And no matter where you are in your leadership journey, our goal is to get you to that next level. And we do that by bringing on amazing guests with leadership experience and insights that you can go and apply right away. We want it to be real practical for you. So we want to give you some meat and some practical tools that you can go and apply in your leadership today. Today, I'm really excited to have Lieutenant General Bob Caslin back on the show for the third time. This is the first time we've had someone on for three times. And on this show, we really want to bring you real and sometimes raw conversations with real leaders. We're not going to shy away from difficult topics that leaders face because that's the reality of leadership. And that's what we're talking about today with Lieutenant General Retired Caslin. As many of you know, he had an incredible career in the Army, 43 years of service, commanded at every level, served as the Commandant and the Superintendent at West Point. Truly remarkable. And you can read his full bio on my website or just Google it. Then he retired from the Army and continued in higher education, where he was eventually selected as the President of the University of South Carolina. Full disclosure, I'm from South Carolina, grew up as a South Carolina fan, so seeing him take over as the President was really cool for me. There was some controversy surrounding his nomination as president, which we'll get into, but he eventually accepted the position, became the university president, led them through COVID. And in fact, the first time I had him on the show, he shared how many faculty members were so pleased with his leadership through COVID that they called together an official meeting to do an official vote of confidence. In the Senate faculty meeting the other day, they, they passed a special resolution of a vote of confidence in the leadership that their president and the president's staff was, was doing. So talk about converts, you know, that's the convert, but that's what motivates me. My, what motivates me is, is the, is the adversity, the challenge. Um, and so I had that particular challenge and, you know, I'm glad to do it. I had a lot of different options, not a lot. I had a few options, a number of them much more financially appealing. But when I realized that, the real true challenge was to earn the trust of people that didn't like you. That was the challenge that really drew me here to South Carolina. And then in May of 2021, President Caslin gave a speech as part of the college graduation ceremony. And after giving the speech, news outlets reported that he had used portions of a speech given by Admiral McRaven without giving proper attribution. There was some back and forth, and eventually President Caslin offered his resignation at the University of South Carolina, and it was accepted. 
Now, General Chasm was kind enough and humble enough to come back on the show to dig into all of this, to talk about what he learned and how you can learn from this experience. I'm really excited to bring you this conversation today. If you're new to this show, I want to say thank you for being here today. A little bit about us, we release a new episode every two weeks, and my hope is that you can walk away with practical leadership lessons from each session that we do. If you want to make sure that you get all the podcast episodes that we have coming out every two weeks, please do subscribe. Hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, a special thank you to all of of you amazing listeners that continue to share this podcast with your network, with your friends on social media, through word of mouth. That really means so much to me. And also thank you to all of you. I'm just blown away by how many of you have taken a few minutes to rate or review this podcast on Apple Podcast if you're in the US or if you're abroad. I want to give a shout out to iPad to a holic. I don't know what that means, but I can appreciate how an iPad would be addicting. He or she said, great leadership podcast. I look forward to each new episode. The topics of discussion are practical. The host's passion and ambition drives him to focus on what leaders need to hear. I highly recommend. Hey, thanks so much for that review on Apple Podcasts. I really appreciate it. Two shameless plugs before we get into the interview today. First, if you would like to partner with us on Patreon, through just giving a monthly support, a dollar, five dollars, please consider doing so. Go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Cal Walters. We have a really ambitious vision for this organization, Intentional Leader. We have a great team of volunteers that are helping, and any support you could give would really help us get that going faster. Also, consider joining the Intentional Leader Lab on Facebook. This is just a private, free group on Facebook. Go to just search Intentional Leader Lab on Facebook. On this free forum, this is a place where you can go as a leader and debate leadership ideas. You can share struggles, problems, grow. It's a private group of leaders who are hoping to get better. Is your organization struggling or, or are you someone who maybe needs to get to that next level? Well, I want to tell you about Higher Echelon. Higher Echelon is a leadership development and organizational performance consulting firm providing human capital and technology services to optimize performance. They've been doing this for a long time, and Higher Echelon can help prepare your organization to meet the rapidly changing, complex, and often ambiguous requirements of today's world by developing resilient and adaptive leaders, modernizing and enhancing your processes, and implementing transformational technology solutions. That's what they do. So they would come in with your organization, they would look at all three of those pillars, and they would help you and your organization get to that next level. If you want to learn more, visit higherechelon.com to connect with Dr. Joe Ross and the amazing team at Higher Echelon. I really appreciate General Kaslin coming on the show. I'm really excited about this conversation. So without any further ado, let's dive into this conversation with General Retired Bob Kaslin. Well, General Kaslin, welcome back to the show. I really appreciate you coming back home. Well, Cal, thank you very much for having me. It's really a pleasure and honor to be with you again. And sir, since we since we last spoke on the show, a good bit has happened in your world, and I want to give folks a little bit of perspective and, and just some context to to people before we get started. So you had an incredible army career, forty three years. You served, commanded at every level from from division down to company. You served as the commandant and the superintendent at West Point, and then you retired in two thousand eighteen. And then you served for the administration of the University of Central Florida, and then in April two thousand nineteen you were announced as one of four candidates to become the president of the University of South Carolina. And there was some controversy around that time of your candidacy that I'd like to unpack a little bit today. But then back in 2000, 
2019 in July, you were selected to be the 29th president of the University of South Carolina. You led the university through COVID, which we discussed back on episode 34. You were really able to gain a lot of confidence and trust from the students and the faculty during that time. And then here we are recording now in June of 2021. But in May of 2021, you gave a commencement speech and news outlets reported a few days later that you had used certain uh, quotes from Admiral McRaven in that speech without giving, uh, without giving credit to Admiral McRaven. And so today I'd like to dive into that. And of course, I think there's a lot of great leadership lessons that we can unpack. But sir, just from your perspective, tell us what happened with the commencement speech. Yeah, thanks, Cal. So the last time you had me here, it was uh, about the book that we had written on character called The Character Edge. And then all of a sudden you become one of the people that you write about. And whereas there's a defect of character or perceived to be a defect of character. So not only do you become that, but you become that on a very high visibility at the national stage. So it's not a lot of fun. It was not necessarily a commencement speech. We had a commencement speaker but as the president of a commencement event, you're kind of like the host. So as we went through the entire uh, sequence of events for commencement to include the speaker's comments, the passing of diplomas to about uh, 3,000, 4,000 students. And so um, these were wrap up comments, final comments that I was passing on, comments of advice. And I'm also the president of not only University of South Carolina, but the University of South Carolina system. So I also attend the commencement events at, at each one of our regional two-year schools, we have four of those, and our comprehensive universities, which are, are uh, four-year schools. So it's in other events that occur throughout University of South Carolina, I and mean, we have a total of uh, in about four or five days of 15 events. And this was the third event on this one particular day, I think the 12th event of the 15 altogether. So there was a pretty serious wow. series of one after another after another sort of events. And about halfway through the whole week of commencement activities, uh, I realized one of the messages that hadn't been, been really emphasized and commented upon was resilience to the, that the students had exemplified during the pandemic. The pandemic was uh, difficult, it was challenging, uh, but they had persevered through it and they had demonstrated resilience and they wanted, and I wanted to find something to recognize and applaud the resilience that they had demonstrated. So I have this file of speeches and quotes and stuff like that that I've been keeping. And I have a speechwriter, and I gave her a couple of my commencement speeches from before and some other quotes. I got this quote, pulled it, pulled it out, gave it to her, and I asked her to put it in. Uh, she did, and uh, so as I'm going through the whole sequence of events at the very end, reading this particular thing. Um, so I did, you know, I mean, so I made those comments. So I said them and I owned them. Ironically, I didn't, it was not attributed at the time. I didn't realize it was not attributed. I should have ensured that it was attributed. I did not. And I didn't realize it was not attributed to Admiral McRaven until I read about it in the newspaper a couple of days later. So, um, and, you know, so of course, when social media takes this, particularly in the environment that, that I was in, and newspapers starting off with a tabloid newspaper that never liked me right from the beginning started talking about this, it went viral and it went viral, it went viral quickly. 
And quite frankly, for the sake of not saying four words, my life has changed forever. Those four words, if I had said them, would have been as Admiral McRaven said, you know, and I failed to say that. And it's not like me not to do that, um, but I said it, I owned it. It was therefore my mistake and I took full responsibility for it. You know, I wasn't going to lie about it. I wasn't going to try to cover it up. I was not going to pass the blame to anybody else. I wasn't going to throw anybody else in the bus. This is, was my, my words that I owned and I took responsibility for it. The problem is when you take responsibility as a leader, and that's what leaders do, they take responsibility. You take ownership of not only the event, but the consequences. And I knew right away the consequences were not going to be very good. But, uh, and I said, but that's, that's what leaders do. You take ownership of not only the event, but also the consequences. And I felt that was the right thing to do. You know, um, I acknowledge it was a mistake. I took full responsibility. But as an oversight, it was not, I want to emphasize, this was not a deliberate attempt to try to deceive somebody. This was a simply an, an attribution that was unattributed and an honest mistake to do so. But nevertheless, it is what it is. And we'll talk, I think, talk about later about the impact of social media, how this went viral, and then the consequences when this occurs based on relationships of trust with constituents. And when trust is lost, then, then, then that, that's when things start unraveling. And that's when you have to make decisions on of whether you stay on or not. So that's kind of mm-hmm. the big picture, Cal. And so, sir, you had already given several speeches before this particular speech that we're talking about? Yeah. Okay. And at what point did you decide to offer your resignation? Was that soon after these news reports came out? Yeah, the... Well, you know, this 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 obviously is being perceived as an issue of integrity. Uh, never discuss whether or not it was a mistake. And then you got the social media that went viral. And as I was discussing this with my board and my board chair, I said, there's two situations that really you should be concerned about. One is this, as if this goes national and the university's reputation is harmed because of it. And um, and the trust relationship that I, as a president, have evaporates between the constituents of the university, starting off with the board, faculty, students, uh, and other constituents in the community to include legislators. And if that trust relationship evaporates and you go to the national level where the university's reputation is concerned, then the right thing to do at that particular point is is to resign, recognizing that trust is broken and uh, you're going to have to get new leadership in there to pull it back together. And I read some reporting that when you offered your resignation initially, that it was rejected. Is that true? Yeah, I had, well, when I actually told my board, my board chair about it for the first time, I said, and he said, no, that's not, please don't do that. That's not where we're going right now. Um, you know, and it, it brought about the same time in one of the other comments, we'll talk about this. Uh, I'm not the best public speaker, Cal, and I'll admit that. I had accidentally said, and this, <laughs> and this was right after standing there, fist bumping 4,000 students' hands or fists, uh, however long that takes, going back to the stands and saying, welcome to the university. You know, the alumni, uh, the chair of the alumni uh, our alumni came on and he had welcomed them as alumni and stuff like that. And I, and I came back and I said, welcome to be an alumni for the university of California. And I just 
slip of the tongue at that particular point. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> you, you know, those sort of things happen. And I'm not the I'm not the best uh, public speaker. I remember one time when I was a superintendent at West Point, right before the Army Navy game, we had the big ga- gala uh, in the convention center. You had everybody who was anybody in the United States Army on one side of the hall. And you had anybody who was anybody in the United States Navy on the other side of the hall. Superintendents get up there and talk. And right at the end of my <laughs> My talk, I slipped and said, go Navy, beat Army. You can imagine how that thing exploded. So um, I've, I've done these snafus before. And uh, so I did it again at this particular point. I said, welcome to the University of California. But, you know, I, it, when I said that at, at the Army-Navy game, it ended right there. Everybody got a good laugh about it. When I said it at the um, University of South Carolina commencement event, um, you know, we'll go all the way, we'll talk about this, we'll go all the way back to my hiring, but there were a group of people out there in the echo chamber that just would never let go. And whenever there was the slightest error mistake, no matter what it was, it just was a viral thing on social media that just exasperated the situation. Um, and it is what it is, you know, but that was the environment that we were working in at that time. So I've been talking to a lot of folks in my circle leading up to this interview just to get their perspective. And a lot of the a lot of people I talk to are like, hey, isn't it their speechwriter's responsibility? I mean, you're you're given speech after speech, you're traveling all over the state. You you pull these quotes and you throw them in a speech and you ask them to kind of put it together. Uh, and I think that raises, you know, kind of a question of leadership in terms of what does ownership look like? What is because re- obviously as a leader, you're having to rely on people to help you out and to, uh, do certain tasks. So how did you process that? I guess what, from your perspective, what is the role of the speech writer? Uh, Cause a lot of people are saying, well, that, that ought to be on them. They ought to vet that that's not on the president who's busy doing other stuff and having to rely on people. What do you say to that? Yeah, but I, I would just say I said it and I owned it and I took responsibility. And that's what leaders do. They take responsibility. Whenever there's a great thing that happens in your organization, you pass the credit to the to the people who accomplished the mission and got the task done. When things go wrong, leaders take responsibility. And when you take responsibility, you take responsibility not only of the event, like I said, but also consequences, as ugly as they are. And this is a good example of that. Um, you know. The last thing I ever wanted to do was to throw someone under the bus on this sort of thing. It was I was the one that gave the quote to my speechwriter to put in there. And um, along with other quotes and speeches that I had given previously, and it was in there, but it was not attributed. You know, the you know, I was talking to one speechwriter, um, Angela Duckworth, and she used to be a speechwriter in the White House, and she said, you know, one of my responsibilities as a speechwriter was to ensure that every single word was proper and legitimate. You know, and we don't have that level of experience where we are. We don't have that level of understanding. I mean, I, she was a wonderful speechwriter. She was all the messages that I had said, either on Twitter or on Facebook, whatever. It was her responsibility to put that out there. And she was marvelous. And this wasn't her mistake. This was my mistake. So, and I told the writer, but I said to I said to her, this is not on you whatsoever. This is totally on me because I am the one that uh, gave you the quote to put in there. And it was my responsibility to ensure that it was attributed. Yeah, I failed to do that. And it, therefore, I own it. And I own not only the event, but the consequences. And that's, 
that's what it is, you know, and I can live with that. Well, and sir, I just want to commend you for that because I think I've heard you talk about that before on other episodes and in your book, but I mean, this, that, this put that to the test. I mean, there are a lot of leaders that could have easily thrown that person under the bus and and you didn't do that. And I, and I can just imagine from her perspective, what a, uh, maybe a, a sense of relief that, that this leader who I sh- certainly respected, admire, whose career is being influenced by this is telling me, Hey, this is on me. And I think that's what great leaders do. They take they take ownership, uh, like you did. I, I, you mentioned uh, the University of, of California that you said that during this uh, during this program, and there were some reporters, at least one, uh, it may have been a tabloid reporter that uh, said something to the effect of he must have been drunk, he must have been under the influence of alcohol. And I, I just want to ask you. I guess just kind of point blank. Is there, is there any truth to that? Is there any truth to that allegation that you were under the influence of something during that commencement period? Cal, that was absolutely not the case. There was not a single drop of alcohol consumed that entire day beforehand or, or afterwards or whatever. Um, the fact that the tabloid news article would infer that just, just kind of shows you the quality of journalism that comes out of that particular newspaper. Um, I I mean, of all the things that were said about me, that right there bothered me more than anything because simply was not true. It was just inferred only to damage my reputation, to legitimately damage your reputation. And the way all of this works, Cal, is as soon as the article came out with the inference that I had been under the influence of alcohol, it goes on social media then there's a whole bunch of people on social media that don't like you. Mm-hmm. And when they get that information, it doesn't become an insinuation. It becomes a fact. And when it becomes a fact in their eyes, it just explodes and goes viral. And then people don't bother to get the truth anymore. Not a single person had asked me whether or not I was drinking alcohol or not, you know, but, but all of a sudden, now it becomes fact, and the fact is that I have been drinking alcohol. And that's the way it works. That's the way this social media exasperates accusations that are just literally false, have no backing whatsoever, and are just throw in there to destroy your reputation. And I'm a victim of, of people's manipulation in order to destroy one's reputation. I am. And I accept that. I understand that's the way it works today. Politicians live in that environment. I don't know how they can do it. I just can't. I just can't. It's a cesspool. It's a cesspool of activity that goes on around there that has nothing to do with facts or nothing to do with truth. Only thing that matters in that world are likes and how many likes you can generate. That I'd like to talk about that because social media is so brutal uh, these days. And that's unfortunately, if you're in a public leadership role, that is a part of your leadership experience. And I'm curious, how, how should leaders treat social media? Because there obviously are, there are some benefits as a leader to be able to get your message out on social media. But from what you've been through and your experience leading, I mean, this is, and this is also not, I mean, this is, this is not your first time being in a public leadership role. You, you were the superintendent at West Point. You were the division commander at the 25th Infantry Division. So what advice would you give to leaders or how do you think about social media as it relates to leadership? Well, one thing I stopped doing, Cal, was listening and reading to social media. I, I stopped my accounts, particularly the Twitter account, because Twitter is nothing more than a cesspool. 
And so I, st I just stopped it. I canceled my account and I don't read it anymore. Um, the problem is when you start reading it, it's, I mean, if you're a human being, you can't help to start to realize that it starts to bother you. And it has an impact. And, you know, I, when I understand when people are bullied and brutalized on social media and they end up taking their own life, I can understand. I can literally understand why they would do that when they see themselves being dragged under the under the mud by these bullies that are out there. Most of them are anonymous, you know, because they live in. They live in a, in a world that does not hold them accountable. They live in a world that they can say whatever they want and live with a set of values that they would never live with in a public environment. And social media enables that to occur. Uh, General Marty Dempsey and Ali Brafman wrote a great book called, um, I wrote it down here, called Radical Inclusion. And in their chapter one of the book, Radical Inclusion, they talk about the digital echo. And it really is an essay on social media, because what they say is that you can put anything you want under any anonymous figure you want to be, and you can say whatever you want on a set of values that you would never say in public. And when you do that, what, what matters are how many likes you can generate, not the facts. And the facts, when you don't have the facts, you don't have the truth. And when you don't have the truth, trust becomes distorted. And, and uh, the, the, the truth becomes distorted. And when the truth becomes distorted, trust becomes distorted. And that's kind of the environment that, you, that you're creating in this sort of thing. But this is, these are, this is the ethics of social media that we all really need to understand. And as this continues over the next number of years, we've got to really understand what is the impact on sociology, what's the impact on, on young men and women growing up in this environment? And how can they work their way through it? The same question you asked me, how can you live and work through something like this when you're being brutalized and, and bullied consistently day after day after day on the social media? And I was in an environment in South Carolina that community out there had a number of people that just did not like me, period. And they used this menu uh, to express their comments and to just... So whenever, when I made the mistake, that's when they were standing on the sidelines and they pounced and it just exasperated itself at that point. And I understand it. That's the way it is today. You know, you see that in, uh, uh, you see that played on the national level all the time. And uh, so it's uh, something that was, uh, that I had experienced myself here recently. And, and sir, so let's, let's go to, the beginning of when you took over, because this was, this was a really difficult circumstances in which you took over. You, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, you were one of four and then you quickly became the front runner. And then at the research that I've done indicates that there was just a lot of, uh, there, there were a lot of political pressures that, that came involved in the beginning of you becoming the president of the university of South Carolina. So in your own words, what was, what was the controversy all about at the beginning? Yeah, so, so I was the non-standardized uh, candidate. You know, I did not come up through a career in higher education. I did not get my doctorate degree uh, in higher education, even though I was the president of the University of the University, well, the superintendent of the United States Military Academy. Uh, it was not they didn't it was not seen as the necessary brand that was that was expected of a president. 
So there was a lot of opposition and the opposition came in, in a number of venues. It expressed itself in other venues, uh, all the way from my military background to, um, uh, to the fact that I didn't have the credentials and, and things like that. So um, during the, in April, when we were doing the interviews, when I did my interview, um, there were students that were protesting and that there were faculty that I found out who recruited students. There were faculty who were protesting and there were faculty who recruited students who were protesting. And matter of fact, one student came up to me one time and said, you know, sir, I'm sick of my instructor, my professor recruiting me to stand up against you. <laughs> I go, don't worry about it. You know, we'll, we'll work our way through all this. Um, so my job at that point, once I found out that I was going to be this, the, the president, was to build trust and to build relationships and to reach out to these people. And I really had a very conscious effort, particularly my first year there, uh, to really develop relationships with the students. And I went really directly to the students who opposed me so that I can build relationships with them and then to the different student organizations and the government organizations, uh, uh, <clears throat> Greek life and a lot of the other ones. I did the same thing with the faculty. I sat down and talked to the faculty, listened to the faculty. We had the process of finding a new provost. We put the faculty in charge of the search committee to do that. Um, and so I really wanted to build relationships with the faculty. And then when we did the, pan the pandemic hit and we built our, put our planning teams together, um, it was important to be as collaborative so that each one of the, each the, all of the faculty and the students would be members of our planning committees and it would be transparent because I knew that in any particular crisis, the pandemic being this crisis, that you really have to build up trust through transparency and collaboration rather than making decisions behind the scene. So I thought I was making great progress with the faculty and with the students, but there are still alumni and members of the community and, and legislators that, uh, that, were, <laughs> that, that were not appreciative of my presence. It, it also became very political and I did not realize this. And the reason it became political was because the governor as the ex officio chairman of the board had asked the current sitting chairman to have a vote on me after the April incident. And that's what occurred in July. Uh, his influence was later determined to be undue influence and it, re and it re received a reprimand from our accreditation, SACS accreditation, which we worked our way through and put policies and procedures in place to prevent something like that from happening again. Uh, but because it was the governor himself, so anybody that's not on the party of the governor wants to find fault with the governor. So the way they do that is to come after me because I was the governor's choice. So if I could, if my reputation can be marginalized, minimized, or even defeated and destroyed as it was, you know, then it's a black mark on, on the governor. So in the midst of all of those political challenges, here I am trying to just help young men and women, future leaders, future corporate members, corporate leaders of America to get a higher education degree and to be able to go back into society and to contribute to society. I, I think some folks hear all that and they think, man, there's so many jobs you could be doing uh, at that time. What was your motivation with all of that 
controversy and politicization or politicization going on, what was your motivation for doing the job? I mean, that, that was a lot of adversity to walk into from the beginning. Yeah, my, my motivation was students. And one thing I learned when I was a superintendent at West Point was <clears throat> the greatest satisfaction I had was to enable students to be future leaders of our country and to provide the programs and policies and procedures in place to enable them to develop those skill sets to do that. So the greatest reward I had, and I had not expected that when I took over as a superintendent, was to be of influence into future leaders' lives. So I, when I left West Point in that year gap when I was working at the University of Central Florida, um, I, I realized that that was my passion, was to give back to students, to give back to society, to give back to communities by developing leaders and develop skill sets within those members of the community so that they can go into those communities and contribute and to give back themselves. And, and that's what I really got excited about. It wasn't, the, it wasn't a new academic program. It wasn't a new financial partnership. It was the development of our future students, our students who are future leaders in our communities and our corporate world today. When you compare, so you, you were the, I think of some of the big jobs you've done, superintendent of West Point, division commander of the 25th Infantry Division, president of the University of South Carolina. How did those other jobs prepare you for this? And are there any areas where you felt unprepared? Yes. Uh, let me ask, answer the second question first. I was really totally unprepared on the hostile environment that I was thrown into. And it was consistently hostile. I, um, you know, in the military, when you're thrown into a, a community in the military, people embrace you. I mean, the, the military communities are tight. They're tight-knit. They're they're, they share hardships. They share their lives together. And there's such a bond of brotherhood and sisterhood among the members of that community. And I had grown to appreciate that. And I was unprepared to be thrown into the University of South Carolina community as hostile as it was. Um, was that through social has, media? I'm sorry. I was going to ask if that was what, what, what did the hostility look like? Was it, I mean, you've already talked a little bit about social media, but were there other ways that you experienced hostility? Well, it was the protests. I mean, <laughs> there was graffiti written on building walls against my policies. It was social media was a venue to express, uh, you know, bullying and confrontation. It was against not only me, but my family, my sons, uh, and, and my wife just, <laughs> it, well, it really was a big issue with us. I'm not a big issue. I mean, it was, it, it was not only affecting me, it had a huge impact on my wife. And, you know, without getting into a lot of details, she was not at all happy to be there whatsoever. And it was very troublesome for her just to see what was going through and what her husband was going through on a consistent daily basis over and over and over again. Yeah. And I'm sorry you went through that. And I, I mean, I kind of go back to what we talked about earlier, social media, uh, I think empowers and embroils people to do emboldens people to do say things that they wouldn't otherwise say. I'm curious because you, you've talked a lot about resiliency. You, you really did a good, great job at West Point of building resilient leaders. How have you been able to navigate this? How have you and your family, what, what are some things that you go to, to 
stay strong throughout this difficult time, not just during your time in South Carolina, but even now? Yeah, you know, I mean, when I stop to think about the fact that for the lack, like I said before, of saying four words, as Admiral McRaven said, those four words, for the lack of saying those, my life has changed forever. But not only that, my reputation has changed for forever. When I saw this explode on the national level and, you know, it, it, you're made out to be, it's almost like you're made out to be a criminal. <laughs> You know, but even in a crime, there are certain elements of a crime. You know, you, all of you lawyers understand that there's got to be certain elements of a crime. <laughs> and one of the elements of using someone else's words without their permission is intent. Did you intend to do that? Did you intend to do it for personal gain or whatever? And absolutely not the case. None of that comes out, of course. And then you're made out to be this person who is unethical and as a result, illegitimate. Um, so, you know, you a lifetime of reputation is now destroyed for the lack of saying four words. So now the question is, well, how do you build that back up or should you build it back up and how do you persevere through that? Well, you know, I'm a man of faith. So my faith says that I put my trust in my creator. And as a result, I believe that everything happens for a reason and that there is a bigger purpose in all of this. So my faith has really uh, helped me and my wife significantly as we've navigated through the last couple of weeks. Reflecting back on your experience at the University of South Carolina, what advice would you offer to leaders? Um, well, you know, that's a great question. Um, the obvious advice is just the tactical advice of giving a speech and making sure that it's attributed properly. You know, so, <laughs> you know, we do. I had a former chief of staff of the Army call me. And he said, you know, by the way, Cal, I'll say, I am comforted by hundreds of emails, letters, phone calls that I received from friends and constituents out there, mostly from the military community. Um, all the way from some of the most senior leaderships of our, um, all the way down to, you know, retired officers and it's my former students, it's amazing. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm humbled by the outreach of all of that. One former chief of staff of the Army reached out to me and he said, you know, it really puts into perspective the importance of speechwriters. Mm. And I said, it does, you know. I mean, <laughs> um, it was my fault. I'm the one that gave her the quote to put in there. You know, it was my fault. But the fact is, you know, as Angela Duckworth said, you know, her responsibility was to ensure every single word in that speech is legitimate and proper. You know, so, you know, we're all doing this at the rookie level. We're all, you know, naive, but the first lesson to be learned is, you know, if you are in the public domain giving speeches, you know, and you have someone helping you, please, I, you have all of these, these programs that you can just put your text right in the program. They'll tell you right away if, if this, if these words have been used by somebody else, it's not that difficult, you know? So, so anyway, that's not, that's number one. Number two is, you know, how do you persevere through adversity and how do you be resilient through adversity? And, and, uh, and, you know, I, I would admit, I've been through a lot of different adversity, but nothing to the degree that it is so personal to do the, to the de destruction of one's reputation. You know, you can have your reputation marginalized with certain groups that are out there, 
But to see it now on the landscape of the national level, uh, that's really, really tough. You know, and a couple of other military colleagues of mine, I'll, I won't mention their name, who also had their reputation trampled on at the national level. And they survived and landed on their feet. They contacted me and helped me uh, out quite a bit. And uh, I am incredibly grateful that they would do that. And uh, it means an awful lot more than you can imagine, you know, for, their, for that particular outreach. Um, but uh, that really does bring in a set of stress and, and adversity that I was not necessarily prepared for. You know, I mean, it's one thing for a unit to not accomplish its mission, you know, and to have stress as a result of that. But it's another thing to see your reputation being trampled on and slapped around at the national level. And uh, so that's another that's that's difficult to, to work through. But like I said, you know, I owned the words I owned. I took responsibility and I therefore own not only the event, but the consequences. And it is what it is. What do you, you, especially having served as a superintendent of West Point, also the commandant, that was what, that was your role when I was a cadet at West Point. What would you say to the West Point community? And I'm sure it's probably been a lot of the folks from West Point that have been reaching out in support of you. Um, I'm sure there also are people on the other side who, who say, Hey, you know, General Caslin represented us, um, what would be your message to the, the community of West Point? Yeah, you know, of course, I understand their concern. And a lot of this, when you talk about plagiarism, you, you talk about stealing someone's information. And then when you talk about stealing, then you immediately go to your honor code that says, we don't lie, cheat, or steal. And they say, okay, you're the guy that is supposed to not only implementing this policy, these procedures, but you have to represent them and you're, you're the role model and now you yourself have failed. And I would just say, well, you're right. You know, we all fail. We're all human beings and we are going to fail. Um, some of us fail at, at a small level that's only seen by ourselves and others will fail at the national level like I did. Um, and, and for that reason, you know, because there is a trust relationship that they had with this, their superintendent of the of the military academies, and if there's a dent in that trust, then they, I offer my humblest apologies as a result of that. Um, but you know, but the, and I'm not out here to try to defend myself, and I don't necessarily want to defend myself. But in any event that is a concern with our honor code, you always go back to intent. Was there intent to deceive? Was there intent to use this information for personal gain? And none of that is, was in place. None of that existed. And, you know, I mean, so if, if there is no intent, do you have a case for using someone's words without their permission? The fact is you do. In the interview I did with NBC directly after this event, they asked me, I said, what well, did you plagiarize. I said, well, if you look at the definition of plagiarism, which is using someone else's words without permission, I definitely did that. You know, so I accept responsibility and ownership of that. But if you go into intent, was it my intent to deceive or to gain person have personal gain from that? The answer is no. It was an honest mistake that quite frankly, I didn't even realize it wasn't even I wasn't even thinking about attribution until I read about it in the newspaper afterwards. 
Yeah. And I can say as someone who's a, a current prosecutor and an attorney in the military, it is the mental state that always goes to the level of, uh, of culpability. You know, it's, it's different to be quote unquote negligent or fail to do something. It's far different than to have some, some intent to do something is it's interesting to me. So Admiral McRaven came out right away and publicly said, General Caslin does not owe me an apology. In fact, General Caslin, and I'm I'm not quoting here, but something the fact that General Caslin is one of the greatest soldiers I've ever served with. Um, what what is your relationship with Admiral McRaven, and is it is it interesting to you that what you the, the words you used are from someone who you you have a relationship with and have served with before? Oh, I got him. <laughs> I have the utmost respect and admiration for him McCraven. You know, a lot of it goes back in Iraq. He was a JSOC commander at the time, and I was a division commander. A lot of his operations were in my area of operations in northern Iraq. Um, and there were a number of times in the middle of the night that he'd fly in, and I'd go out there and meet him at the airfield. <laughs> he's all kitted up, you know. <laughs> and it's in the middle of the night in Iraq, you know, and he's out there doing what, JSOC does, and they were phenomenal. Uh, so, I, um, you know, I have a lot of respect and I have a lot of admir admiration. When he retired, he went directly into higher education himself. He was a system president, chancellor. And when I retired from West Point, I was being recruited to be the chancellor of the Pennsylvania system. So I sought him out to gain some advice on whether or not to be a system chancellor or not. And I ended up being the president of the university, not the, and a system as well in South Carolina, different from what Pennsylvania, what he had done. But his, his experiences in higher education coming out of the military were very helpful to me um, in the conversations that we had um, before I took over at the University of South Carolina. So, you know, he's one of those men that I will have the highest regard and and admiration for forever. And for him to come out and say what he did really, it didn't impact my situation at all, but nonetheless, nonetheless, for him to say that means an awful lot. You led in the military and then now you're leading in a very public way at the university of South Carolina. And, and you talked about already the struggles with leading and, and just the, the controversy and social media. I often wonder sometimes why more, military leaders, former generals don't go into public service or don't, don't then go and lead in different ways. Any thoughts on why that doesn't happen a lot? I mean, do you think a lot of what you've gone through is, is kind of the, some of the reasons that military leaders don't decide to go and run for office? I mean, you used to have tons of former generals that would be presidents of the United States and congressmen, and you don't see that quite as much, I don't think, as you used to. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things at play. One is, uh, you know, the scrutiny that you're going to go under is going to be significant and relentless. And, and, and I did not realize the University of South Carolina president was going to be such a political position. Someone told me after I got there, you are the second most political person in the entire state of South Carolina. What do you, I said, what do you mean? I don't even want to run for office. They said, the governor is number one. But you are number two. Everybody is watching you. And so you're under constant scrutiny. I said, I haven't signed up to be under constant political scrutiny. You know, I'm not a politician. I have no desire to be a politician. And it is what it is. The second thing is what's important is in the political realm is the role of a general officer 
in, in providing political, well, to provide political or to provide military advice or to transition over to provide political advice. America wants their military leadership to be apolitical. They want them to provide unpoliticized military advice to political leaders under civilian control of the military. That's the way we have been designed by our constitution. That's the role that military leaders should, should play. As soon as America sees senior leaders of the military active or retired providing political advice or criticizing a current serving administration, they immediately see that as a politicized military. And when they see our military, when American people see our military as politicized, then they lose trust. And we go back to the situation we had with the American people in the military back in the Vietnam days. In the profession of arms, every profession has a client. In the profession of arms, our client is the American people. And in any profession, the professionals have to have a relationship with their client. And it's important that we in the profession of arms have a relationship with the American people. And you have that relationship with the American people really based on not only your competence, but on your character. And the competence and character will build the trust that's necessary between you and your client, between us and the military and the American people. If we become politicized as a military, we break the trust. And when it's very important so that when military members decide and when they retire to become politicized, it's a very important decision. But at the same time, they've got to be very careful as they walk that route that they, if they're running for office, they express themselves as a political candidate running for office not necessarily as a former military person, but as a political candidate running for office, as an American citizen running for office. If they stand on the sidelines as a senior officer criticizing a current administration, just for the sake of criticizing it, then that I think, in my opinion, that starts going into the breaking the trust relationship that is necessary between the military and the American people. Uh, I'm not sure if you understand what I'm really talking about on that relationship and how important trust is in that relationship. But I think that's one of the, one of the reasons why um, I think retired military officers are hesitant to seek um, political positions. And it seems to me leadership in a political role would be uniquely difficult when you compare that to leadership in a apolitical role, because you're so worried about well, what is the what are the people going to think about this, or what are the how's this going to how's this going to brief from a political perspective? Is that is that the challenge? Because you've you've talked already about the difficulty of leading in a political role, like you had, and that that really wasn't what you thought you signed up for. Is that is that the challenge, or what what are the biggest challenges to being in a political leadership role? Yeah, well, you know, I always thought that it was important to provide advice. To, to our political members. And then as, for example, in a public university, um, your, a, a portion of your budget, a large portion of your budget comes from taxpayer dollars. So those are political, that's a political decision to forward that money to you. You have to go testify to certain financial committees to make the case why it's necessary for you to receive that. Uh, so because and on top of that, the way our board is structured, um, our board is structured so that they can be 
elected from within the political constituents uh, area of responsibility. And so there's a political connection even with our board members as a result. Uh, so whenever you have that sort of thing, uh, my position was not to provide political advice, but to give practical advice at an administrative level, at an educational level to political leaders so that they can make the decision. And in everything, I tried to be apolitical. And it's very, it's, it's a close tightrope that you really have to walk through. Um, and, and a lot of times you make decisions on what you say and what you do on what's best for the university, not what is best for what the politicians want to hear. You know, in the case, I always said we're in the middle of a number of pandemics, COVID-19 being one pandemic, but, but social justice and building renaming are a couple other pandemics that we're in the crossroads in right now. And as we were navigating our way through social justice, as presidents are talking to students and as presidents of universities are talking to faculty members and saying, you know, not necessarily what they want to hear, but what, what's important for the university. Sometimes that may not be what politicians want to hear. And as a result, it's also what some board members may not want to hear. So it's a very, very tight, tight rope that you're walking and navigating through when presidents of, of these universities are saying things, what's best for the university, not politicized, but what is best for the university. Uh, now and in the future, it's a it's a it's a real challenge. Unfortunately, what you're saying what you're saying what is best for the university ends up being perceived by politicians as politicized, or con it can become a politicized words that you say anyway. Well, sir, I know we're running out of time here. I I do want to ask you one last question, uh, and that I think a lot of people are curious: what's next for you? Uh, and I I personally hope you're not done leading, and I'm sure you're not done serving, whatever that looks like, but I'm curious, any any sense at this point of what might be next for you? Well, I want to be a grandpa to my grandchildren. <laughs> I got some makeup time to do there. Um, my wife's father, uh, old World War II veteran, 93 years old, still alive. I've got to go meet and spend some time with him. I, what a great American. Um, so, you know, I, I do have a lot of family time and commitments, family commitments that I put on the side, uh, because of the South Carolina opportunity and serving in the military for 43 years. And I got some time to make up, um, I believe in serving, serving leadership. And if there's a servant opportunity a leadership opportunity to serve someplace, I would certainly consider that in a heartbeat. And, uh, I always, and I still firmly believe that the future students, the students of our country today, particularly those students in higher education committed to getting the education that will propel them into our societies as leaders into the corporate world, whether it's government service, corporate service or whatever, that uh, they have the skill set and to be able to provide for them that skill, those skills, I think is something that's um, a worthy cause to do. Well, sir, uh, anything I didn't ask you today, or, or is there anything else you would like to say uh, before we wrap up today? Yeah, no. Um, I do appreciate, Cal, what you what you have given me the opportunity to, to kind of explain what all took place and some of the challenges that are associated with this. Um, you know, 
we we talk about leadership and leaders leaders who take responsibility. And then when you get to this particular point that it is so public in the national level, are you really going to be true to your beliefs? Or are you going to find a way to marginalize what, what actually took place? So, you know, it's important that you, when you wake up in the morning, you look yourself in the mirror. And uh, so that your conscience is clean, that you, yeah, you, you made the mistake, you, you owned up to it. You took responsibility for it and you took responsibility for the consequences, whatever they are. And it is what it is. Now it's time to rebuild and to uh, go forward and to continue to go forward. That's great, sir. And I, I just, uh, I commend you. I think you've demonstrated a lot of authenticity throughout this vulnerability, uh, the willingness to take ownership. Uh, you've demonstrated resilience. And uh, as always, sir, I'm just so thankful for your leadership uh, in good times and in bad. And I, I'm excited to watch where God uses you next and where you go and serve. And I wish you well as you get to spend some time with with your family, grandkids. And uh, I know that they'll enjoy getting to getting to have Bob Caslin around a little bit more these days. All right, Cal. Thanks so much. So grateful. Appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Special thank you again to General Caslin for coming back on the show. He did not have to do that. I'm sure this is not necessarily easy for him to talk about. So I really appreciate his authenticity, his humility, his heart for leadership, his heart for sharing lessons learned. And I think that has been demonstrated through his devotion and time at West Point and his time at the University of South Carolina. You heard him describe his, his heart and passion to see young leaders grow into leaders of character. And even in this moment of difficulty, he's sharing lessons that he learned in a public way. I think a big takeaway is that leaders take ownership uh, in good times and in bad. And I loved the example of the speechwriter, his, his willingness to go to her and say right away, I own this. I've had that happen in my own experience where I've made some mistakes and the senior leaders come to me and say, Cal, I own this. And there's something about that that insulates you, it protects you, it gives you confidence and just pure admiration for that leader. And that's what General Caslin demonstrated. Also, that we take responsibility even when consequences are not going to be good. Let me know what you think. If you enjoyed this, please uh, leave us a rating review. I really appreciate that. Friends, as you go out today, I hope you are intentional about the way you lead, about the way you live your life. I hope you're getting some rest. I just came back from a week at the beach last week, and it was so nice for me to get a break. I almost cut my vacation short initially because I was like, I need to get back to work, but I ended up just taking the full week. It was some wonderful time with my family, with my daughter, with my wife, and I just encourage you to, even though we're coming out of COVID, take some time to get away. It's okay. In fact, you should be doing that because when you do that, you really set a great example for the people on your team, the people that you're leading and encourage them to go get some time away as well. We all need to work hard, but we also need to rest and take that seriously so we can be at our best. I hope you go and have a great week. I really appreciate you being here today. Life is short. Let's go make it count.